0: Well, good morning, everybody. How's it going? Awesome. You guys can take a seat. Uh, welcome to those of you who are right here at the Cineplex Odeon. Welcome. Big shout out, as Andrew uh, already said, to those who are online. And uh, shout out to, we have a whole bunch of people next door to us in Theater 2, uh, mums and dads and kids. And uh, we have a whole bunch of people out in Souk who are gathered this morning uh, to worship. So Uh, Yeah, a whole bunch of people uh, tuning in this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, grab it, go to Matthew chapter 8. By the way, my name is Chris. If I haven't uh, met you yet or if you're new, joining us online, uh, one of the leaders here loves to teach and preach the Bible. We are going verse by verse through the gospel. Matthew's been going through, I think this is week 86 or 87, something like that. Uh, And we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 18. So that's where we're going to pick up. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, we're going to get through the first four verses of that chapter. I just want to prime the pup, though, for you. Uh, As you turn there or download Bible app and go to Matthew 18, uh, let me ask uh, a question just to kind of get us uh, thinking, get us going here. When you think of greatness, when you think of this idea of greatness, uh, what do you think of? Now, I know immediately the first thought that comes to your mind is probably like you, Chris, you come to mind. Just put that aside for a second. Um, (laughs) Been waiting all week to say that. Um. Uh, but what are some of the characteristics you think of? What are, like, who are some people you think of, right? Like, when you think of greatness, you think of uh, somebody who's maybe at, like, the pinnacle, like, or, or like, the apex of their craft. Like, in, in my house, we are uh, a family of not all boys, but mostly boys, and we're all into basketball, and the girls just kind of get sucked into that. So for us, when we think of greatness, we think of the GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. Uh, that's what GOAT means for all you people uh, over the age of 30. Michael Jordan. Right, Michael Jordan is greatness personified in our house, but it could be—I don't know—Michelangelo, right? Great artist. Uh, could be uh, Beethoven, like somebody who is good at whatever Beethoven did. It could be Cardi B. Maybe Cardi B is your expression of what? <laughs> okay, here's the deal, though. Here's the deal. Like often when we think of greatness, we think of somebody who's done really well at something. Well, Jesus, today in the text that we come to, Jesus is going to redefine for us what greatness means, okay? So here we go, Matthew chapter 18, picking up in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked. Okay, so they're going to ask Jesus a question. Before we get to that question, let me just hit pause here and kind of set this up with a little bit of context. So we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, like I said, since like two thousand and two. Uh, life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew's painting for us this picture of of Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 16, 17, and 18, we get this really specific uh, zeroing in that Matthew's trying to do, where he's giving us a bit of an insider peek into the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples, his closest followers. Up to this point, Jesus, like I said, he's been healing people. He's been preaching and teaching and doing things. And He's been trying to reveal who he is, but up to this point, he's been somewhat ambiguous. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, 17, and 18, he's starting to really lay out with with a high degree of clarity for his first followers who he actually is. So this is, if you could just imagine the scene, Jesus and his closest disciples having an insider conversation. Now, here's the question that they ask him. Look at what it says. Who then is the greatest? In the kingdom of heaven? Who, Jesus, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it's easy for us uh, to look at a question like this and think, okay, that's a little pretentious. Little pretentious for the disciples to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, can you tell us uh, which of us is the best? Which of us is the greatest? But again, if you understand the context, this isn't actually that ridiculous of a question. In fact, if you were in their shoes, it might be a question you would ask. If you were here last week, you remember. Uh, last week for example Jesus uh, went to great lengths to demonstrate how he has a unique relationship with God the Father that that his father is the one who has ruler or uh, rulership or dominion over the temple and that because Jesus is son of the father he doesn't have to pay the temple tax and and because that he doesn't have to pay the temple tax his disciples who are his closest followers they get kind of they get kind of brought into that relationship they have a unique relationship to the God of the universe, because of their connection to Jesus. So they've just come from that scene, that incident, and now they're sitting here going like, you know, I think we're pretty important. Like they're walking with a bit of a swagger. They got their chest out, you know, their chin up. They're like, Jesus is our guy. We're with him. He's a big deal because we're with him. We're a big deal. So Jesus, can you tell us how big of a deal we actually are? The question actually does make some sense when it's placed in its context. But there's a phrase that is baked into their question that is so important for us to understand, to really grasp the gravitas or the gravity of what Jesus is going to say in response. Look at this phrase. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In the kingdom of heaven. It's a very specific location of where greatness is found. Now, the kingdom of heaven is a massive theme through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven more than any book in the New Testament, more than any book in the entire Bible. In fact, I would argue he probably talks about it more than all the other books combined. Jesus' ministry in Matthew's gospel has been very centered on this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew's gospel, I believe it's in chapter 4, when he starts his public ministry, he starts with a sermon. It's a one-line sermon where he comes and he says, repent for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near, it's, it's, it's right with us. Jesus teaches and preaches, and much of his teaching and preaching is about the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's the constitution is what we said, the constitution of the kingdom. And so our understanding of what's taking place by the asking of this question, but then also the answer Jesus is going to give us, hinges on our ability to kind of grasp what's happening as they're having this dialogue about the kingdom of heaven. Because the disciples... Uh, before Jesus had a picture in their mind of what the kingdom of heaven was like. Uh, For the disciples, the kingdom of heaven was sort of a nationalistic kingdom. Uh, They had this view that they were a part of a particular nation, the nation of Israel, the people described as the people of God through the Old Testament. And because they had this special relationship that one day God was going to bring Israel back into this place of dominance and preeminence on the global stage. They were once there, at this time, as this was all taking place, they were under the tyranny or rule of the Roman Empire, and they longed for a day when God would come, and, you know, I know this is like a loaded phrase, super loaded phrase, right? Where God would come and make Israel great again. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be restored to economic uh, economic dominance, social dominance, political dominance. They wanted They wanted to be the best. They wanted to be great. That's what they wanted. But that's not how Jesus talks about his kingdom. He doesn't talk about it as an earthly kingdom. He doesn't talk about it merely in terms of it being a physical kingdom, although it has physical implications. It's not a kingdom of one nation. Jesus comes on the scene and says his kingdom's for all nations, tongues, and tribes. I mean, we even see this in who the people are that are drawn to Jesus and who Jesus invites to be some of his followers. They're people who are on the outside, they're people who are not a part of the nation of Israel. Uh, Jesus says, my kingdom is not about being on the top of the, the geopolitical scene. It's actually about being on the bottom, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who per- are persecuted. That's all in the Beatitudes at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus has this, this different idea of the kingdom Well, the, the disciples have this picture of the kingdom where they, they want Israel to be like brought up. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The kingdom is all about bringing heaven down. That's actually how he instructs us to pray. Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about a nation. It's not about global dominance. It's not about being on top. It's about something completely different than that. Now listen, this is going to cause great tension in the hearts of the disciples. There's going to be this collision that occurs between Jesus' vision of the kingdom and the disciples' collision, uh, the disciples' vision of the kingdom, but it's also gonna happen for you and me. Uh, we all in our mind have a picture of what greatness is. We have a picture in our mind of what, what it looks like, maybe not for the kingdom of heaven to come, but for us to fulfill our dreams, our fantasies, our longings. And Jesus' kingdom comes and collides with that. There's this collision of kingdoms. That occurs. So, who then Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom? Look at Jesus' answer, verse two. Before he speaks, here's what he does: He called a little child to him, and placed the child among them. Now, again, context is important and helpful. So, here we are: Jesus and the disciples inside our conversation. They're in Capernaum still. Others say that they're probably at Peter's house. They're having this conversation in Peter's home. The disciples are there. There's probably a few other people there. There's some family members around. And Jesus goes and grabs a child. And he puts the child in the center of the room. On his lap, I'm not sure, we're not told. But the child is there. And this child is going to serve as a living parable, metaphor, or illustration to answer the question that the disciples are asking. I mean, this is just... It's kind of crazy if you think about it. I mean, if, if it would make sense, right, if Jesus just said, uh, you know, the disciples asked, who's, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, uh, I am. Okay, sermon over, text over, on to the next thing. It's not what he does. He brings in this little child, places the child in the center of the room, and then look at what he says, verse 3. Truly I tell you, in other words, you need to pay attention, You need to lean in. Whenever Jesus says, truly I tell you, it's kind of like saying sincerely or this is a big deal. Now look at these words. This is big, guys. This is big. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a little child in the center of the room. Jesus says, what I'm about to tell you is a big deal. And he says, unless you change, and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So many of us wonder, how do we get to this place where we have a restored relationship with God? Uh, We're spiritual seekers, we're on a journey, maybe you're watching online for the first time, someone shared this on their social media feed, and you're just watching, and you have spiritual questions. And the question you're wondering is, how do I actually come to this place where I know God? Jesus gives us the answer right here. He says, "You change, or you become like a little child." Uh, some of you maybe have been followers of Jesus for a long time. Uh, you go to a church gathering, you participate in the life of the church, you do all these things. You're you know, you you, you serve, you gave, you do all the churchy church things that churchy church people are supposed to do, but deep down inside, it just seems like maybe there's something off. You wonder, am I actually a follower of Jesus? See, because so often we define following Jesus with external factors. There's a checklist of things that I must do in order to um, be declared as a follower of Jesus, or or we we think of it like this: there's a a, a set of theological truths that I have to give mental assent to if I if I say this is true and this is true and I believe this and I believe that then that somehow that that grants me access to the kingdom put all those things together my religious obedience and my theological mental assent that I give to facts and doctrine there you go I'm in the kingdom that's not what verse 3 says Jesus says if you, If you want to enter into the kingdom, you must become, you must change or become like a little child. So what does he mean? What does it mean to change or become like a little child? Is Jesus, is he saying here like he does in John chapter 3 when he's speaking to Nicodemus, you have to go be born again? No, although I think there's some truth that could be applied there. It's not what he means though. Is he saying that, uh, you know, in order to come to faith in Jesus or entrance into the kingdom, uh, you have to, uh, you know, you have to have faith like a little child, right? How often do you hear this? That's what Jesus means. You have to have faith like a little child, which means, you know, that's code, Christian code word for don't ask any questions, uh, don't doubt your faith, and check your brain at the door. Is that what Jesus means? No, that's not what he means. That's not what he means. Here's what he's saying. In order to enter into the kingdom, you must become like a little child. Now, when you think of a child, what do you think of? I mean, if you have kids, you probably think all sorts of things, right? If you have your kids here with you, you're like, oh, kids are great. We love them. They're so wonderful. If you have little kids and you're sleep training them, you're like, yeah, I love kids. Kids are awesome, right? No, no, no. No, you don't think those things. I have four kids. You think all sorts of things about kids. Some of them good. Some of them not so good. But here is one thing that is consistently true with all Children, there is this utter dependency that kids have on their parents. And all the moms in the room said, Amen. There's this utter dependency that children have on their parents. I mean, just let me give this uh, another stab here by way of illustration. So, our community group right now is uh, we're meeting, we've kind of broken up into two groups, we're meeting in two different homes. And on Thursday night, uh, we met my my half of the group met at David and Brianna Williams' house. And the Williamses were there, and Mark and Jesse Watkins were there, uh, and there were a bunch of little kids. Now, my kids are older. They're still dependent. They're just dependent in different ways, okay? But there's a whole bunch of little kids there. And I watched, I observed as this kind of night unfolded, and there was parts of me that were like, oh, I'm so thankful my kids are older, (laughs) Uh, but then you have like older kids, you're like, man, I wish my kids were younger. So I don't know, it kind of cuts both ways. But here's what, here's what happened. I watched as like Brianna had to like take a plate and go and scoop a bunch of food on the plate. And then she had to take a little Reuben, I'm not sure how old he is, he's a little guy though, and plunk him down in a little baby boo chair, whatever the things are called these days, strap him in, put his plate on the, on the little tray, and he starts eating and takes the odd bite. And then he literally, this is what he did, he took his plate and he just poof, chucks it across the room. Food everywhere. And then I watched as David and Brianna scurry around to clean up the food, put it back on the plate. I'm sure they blew it off. 10 second rule. Put it back on the plate. Put it on the tray. Feeding Ruben, Like, are you going to eat all, you know, they're managing their kids? And then kids are playing. They're going up and down the stairs, and they're following their kids around because they don't want their kids to fall on the stairs. They fall on the stairs. They're going to hurt themselves. Here's my point. The children, like, they were completely dependent on their parents, or else they would probably kill themselves. They would die. I mean, if you just take a kid, a child, a little baby, and place it in the middle of the room and walk away for a week, it's not going to go well. They need. They're dependent. There's this thing inside of them that recognizes that they need someone else to meet all of their needs. All of their needs. And Jesus comes in and he says, if you want to enter into my kingdom, you must become like a little child. Now, if you look at your life right now, ask yourself this question, do I have need? I mean, think about it, right? You probably have enough food in the fridge. You probably have a roof over your head. There's probably enough zeros in the bank account to get you through for a little while. I mean, just think about this for a second. We're in the middle of a global pandemic where like the the sky is falling and the the globe is falling apart and we live on Vancouver Island. Like Vancouver Island of all places. Like we are isolated, sheltered from all of the hardships of life. I mean, it's just unbelievable. We're so lucky to live where we live, right? right? Right, except this. Except this, what this does is produces inside of us this myth that we don't have need, that we somehow have everything we need and we want nothing and we lack nothing. I mean, you see this in the Western world right now. The Western world right now, the church is just, it's falling off the edge of a cliff. Why? Why? Because in the West, we have this fiercely individualistic mentality. We're post-enlightenment. We send people to the moon. We have cell phones in our pockets. You can order food from here. It'll be at your door. When you get home to eat it for lunch, you're going to have everything you want all the time. You lack nothing. And here's the problem with that. When you lack nothing... You have no room in your life for Jesus. I mean, According to Jesus, I mean, I extrapolate this out a little bit. Jesus' words, according to Chris here, while we think we are the luckiest people on planet Earth to live in Canada, to live on Vancouver Island, and don't get me wrong, I love it here, and I do believe that we are super blessed to live here. We think we're the most advantaged people. According to Jesus, we're the most disadvantaged people. This is why we love Jesus, the idea of Jesus as a religious teacher, a religious guru, somebody who's like spitting out religious pithy sayings for us, somebody like a Jesus who we can add to our already awesome lives, because our lives are already awesome, and so we don't need to be saved. We're not like little babies sitting in the middle of the room crying because we have great need. We have everything. And we miss out on Jesus because of it. The idea of Jesus who, a Jesus who needs to save us doesn't make sense. Does not compute. If you have your Bibles, keep your fingers in Matthew 18 and slide over to the right, right to the very end, the book of Revelation, chapter 3. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, there's a section there where uh, John the Apostle records uh, what is classically known as the seven letters to the seven churches. Uh, In chapter 3, there's a letter to the church of Laodicea. And Laodicea was this very, very much like us, this privileged people. Right? They were wealthy, they were affluent, they were innovative. They kind of had everything you could want and more. And these letters that Jesus is writing to these churches, he's offering to them encouragement, but he's also offering to them critique. And what we're going to see here in Revelation chapter 3 is a bit of a critique. Look at what he says, and I think it's apt for what we're talking about today, and it's apt for the context in which we live. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. You say, in other words, the people say, the people of the church of Laodicea, the the people of West Village, the people in Victoria say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. I've got everything I could want and more. I need nothing. Nothing. And then look at what Jesus says next. But, it's a big but. My daughter giggled when I said that in the first gathering. <laughs> you just got it. It's a butt of Sir Mix-a-Lot proportions. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, is I can see through the veneer. I can see through the veneer of the house, of the two cars, of the .3, 2.3, the white picket fence, Sparky the dog who always does what he's told, the bank account. I can see through it all. I can see your heart. When I see your heart, do you know what I see? You have need. You have need. When your head hits the pillow at night and you stare at the ceiling, you realize you have need. We've all been through seasons in our life, right? Where we have need. Where we feel hopeless and we feel helpless and we don't know what to do because, yeah, we've got everything we could want and more, but something in here isn't right. There's a brokenness in here that we can't seem to fix. We've tried everything. We've tried relationships. We've tried sex. We've tried money. We've tried alcohol. We've tried pills. We've tried greatness. we tried success. It just doesn't work. There's still a need. look at what Jesus says next. By the way, this is what I love about Jesus. He comes in, he critiques. He critiques the human heart. He critiques the church of Laodicea. He critiques you. He critiques me. But he doesn't leave us there. You notice that about Jesus? He doesn't ever just leave you there. He doesn't just leave you disheveled, hopeless, and helpless. He tells you you're hopeless and helpless, right? He calls it like it is. He cuts right to the heart of things. But look at what he says next. Verse 19, I counsel you, I instruct you, I implore you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes have white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and self to put on your eyes so that you can see. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, man you think you, have everything, you actually have nothing. you think you have need, but really you're broken. And when you come to that place where you recognize your brokenness, that's where you will find that I have everything that you are looking for. Do you recognize, do you recognize, friends, that you have need? See, Jesus came as a Savior. He came to rescue and redeem and to save because he knows that's what we need He didn't come as a political figure because he knows that our problem isn't a political problem. He didn't come as an entertainer because he knows that our problem he knows that our problem isn't an entertainment problem. He didn't come merely as a religious guru because he knows that our problem isn't a religious problem. He came as a savior because he knows that you and me on our own, by ourselves, we are like babies sitting in the middle of a room crying for someone to come and rescue us. He came to save. And he says, do you want entrance into my kingdom? Then you must become, you must become like one of these little children. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never the kingdom of heaven Some of us hear this, and a bit of a pushback for us. Uh, we, we hear this, and we ask the question, does that, does that mean, then, that I'm not supposed to pursue uh, achievement or ambition? Does, does that mean, then, that I'm not supposed to, to go after things? Look at what Jesus says next in verse 14, because he, does, he, he, he doesn't call us to, uh, you know, to sit back on our hands. Look at what he says in verse uh, 4. He says, therefore, in everything I've just said, Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus doesn't say is that you aren't supposed to pursue greatness. What Jesus says is you are supposed to pursue greatness in the way that I have laid out. Uh, So cultural greatness says that you're supposed to pursue your own ambition, your own self-actualization, your own well-being. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have this kind of new age idea of greatness. Uh, Sort of Buddhism, you know, kind of espouses ideas like this where if you actually want to be self-actualized or experience fulfillment, the way to do that is to actually set aside all ambition and desire. That if you can rid yourself of ambition, if you can rid yourself of desire, then you'll no longer have unmet expectations. And if you can do that completely and fully, then here's what you will do. You will achieve nirvana. You'll feel great about yourself because you won't have any need that is unmet. And Jesus comes in and he critiques both of those ideas, sets himself apart, and he says that's not what greatness is like. Greatness isn't about yourself. Greatness isn't about ridding yourself of pleasure and desire. It's not about achieving pleasure and desire. You know what the similarity between those two definitions of greatness is, right? The thing those two have in common, it's still about you. You're at the center of that story. Jesus comes in and he actually says the way to pursue greatness The way to become great is to kill the self. It's to deny the self. That's why Jesus says time and time again, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and then you can follow me. The denying of self, the the, the literal killing of the selfish ambition is the way that you humble yourself, become like a child, enter into the kingdom. And here's what Jesus is saying is that's the kind of greatness that I'm calling you to pursue. I'm calling you to pursue greatness the way that I define it. and The way that Jesus redefines greatness is simple, profound, difficult, but it's simple. It's greatness that seeks to bring glory to God and live for the benefit of others. And Jesus himself is the ultimate picture of this greatness. If you just think of the end of Jesus' life, in John chapter 17, we get this picture of Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. This is the night before he's about to go to the cross. He knows what he's walking into. He knows he's walking into this place of, of utter torture and torment. It's physical torment. It's emotional torment. It's spiritual torment. He knows what he is about to endure. He's, walk, he's been walking towards this for some time, and he gets in the garden the night before he goes to the cross, and he prays to his heavenly Father what does he pray? He says, Father, take this cup from me, this cup of of the wrath of God, of the full measure of what Jesus is about to experience on the cross. In other words, he comes to Jesus. He's like, I don't know if... Jesus comes to the Father, rather. He says, I don't know if I want to go through this. This sounds really hard, right? It's like you're hearing everything I'm saying. you're, You're going, this sounds really hard. I actually really like living for my own ambition. I don't know if I want death to self. I don't know if I want to put aside all my own desires and reorient them around the glory of God and the benefit of others. Jesus is right there with you, friends. He gets it. He feels it. He understands. You can pray to him and he will hear you and he knows exactly what you're feeling. But then his next line is this. But Father, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, Father, I'm living for your glory, even if it costs me my life. And the next day, he wakes up. And he's tortured. And he's killed. He gives up his life. And who benefits from that, friends? Who benefits from it? We do. Jesus, the greatest person who ever lived. For the glory of God and the benefit of others, he lays down his life. See, greatness in the kingdom of heaven, it's not about sitting on your hands and doing nothing. It's not about living for your own glory. It's about going. It's about having all kinds of ambition, all kinds of desire, all kinds of activity, all kinds of doing. But it's for the glory of God and the benefit of others. And Jesus invites us to humble ourselves, become like Little children recognize that, that God, he's the one who saves us. He's the one who picks us up in the middle of the living room as we're crying, holds us, meets all of our needs. And then we get to live for his glory and we get to invite others into that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, Jesus, we thank you We thank you that you you had the most privileged position and yet you were willing to lay it down. You were willing to humble yourself. You were willing to live in obedience to your heavenly father. All the way right until the very end, right to your death, your last, your very last breath. When you decried, declared, it is finished. And In that moment, you purchased the forgiveness for our sins. Our benefit was received. We thank you for that. Humble us, we pray, Lord. Humble us. That we might become like little children. Pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. We are going to respond in communion. So if you have your communion supplies, pull those out. Prepare yourself. Let me just say a few things as we go to the table together. Um, communion is, uh, you know, it's one of those ordinances that we are instructed through the word of God, to practice regularly. And, and we, we feel like it's just so, it's so important for us to come. Well, as, as unusual of a season as this is, and unusual, uh, as unusual of a season as this is, we think it's it's so uh, important for us to remember to do this. And I think I feel like, I mean, I feel like I could say this every Sunday, but I feel like this text in particular, uh, it really, communion really, is what this text is getting after? I mean, if you if you think back to uh, the first time the disciples would have had communion as Jesus celebrating the Passover with them and preparing to go to the cross, it would have been not like this. It wouldn't have been a cool little lunchable, right? A little communion lunchable. This would have been this would have been a, a meal that they would have celebrated, a feast, if you will, that they would have celebrated. When you sit down to eat a meal, well, why do you eat? You you eat because you're hungry. And you're hungry because you have a need. And so you eat a meal, and that meal meets the need. It satisfies the need. And Jesus comes to us here in Matthew chapter 18. He says you need to become humbly dependent like a little baby. In other words, express, acknowledge that you have need. Cry out to God that you have need. And then what does God do? He sends his son to come and meet the need. And and communion is a picture of the death of Jesus. The the little wafer is a picture of his broken body. The juice is a picture of his shed blood all done on the cross for us to save us. And there's like this spiritual moment that is taking place right now whereby we're going to actually take in these emblems as symbols of Jesus' meeting of our need. Of his saving us. And so as we come to the the table, the proverbial table, as we we come to the meal, if you will, we're not just saying we're we're hungry. Physically, we're saying we're starving spiritually. Like Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, we're poor, naked, wretched, blind. We're like little babies in the middle of a room crying out, praying that somebody would come and save us. And then communion is... It's Jesus coming in, picking us up, holding us, shushing us, giving us whatever it is we need, changing our bum, feeding us, and then putting us back to sleep. It's a picture of him meeting all of our needs. And so just as the Apostle Paul instructs us to do and invite you to take the wafer as a picture of the broken body of Jesus in remembrance of him and again as the apostle paul instructs us to take the cup picture of the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus responding in obedience to the Father and responding in the cry of our need, allowing his blood to be shed for you and for me for the forgiveness of our sin. Take and drink in remembrance of Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your obedience. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your willingness to lay down your life for our sake. Spirit, would you you press firmly into our hearts, both how needy we are, but how loved we are at the same time. And we pray in the name of Jesus. And all God's children said, Amen.